the Pharisees had heard. Is my mic on? Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized. He left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he the one who was speaking to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we are coming before you this morning seeking a word, seeking a message, seeking some truth to continue to carry us through our days and Father, we just ask that you would do that. 
teach us this morning. May your spirit open our eyes to the beauty and reality of who you are and what you desire to do in our lives. For we pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. The book of John contains a series of snapshots, a series of one-on-one conversations with Jesus Uh, whom the book begins by introducing as the Word, the Word made made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jumping down to verse 14 of John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. That's how it introduces Jesus, the first chapter in the book of John. And John tells us then later towards the end of his gospel the exact purpose of the record which he, pe- which he penned. Why did he write it? He actually tells us. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, the Bible says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the purpose of the book of John. Everything that's written in it, we must see every recorded interview as a purposefully included account to help us see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So everything in the book of John is very purposeful. Starting with the first miracle in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, Cana, where we all know the story, maybe or maybe not, but the water was turned to wine, right? You may have heard of that one. When we look at that story, according to what John says, we must see it as an account that's communicating with us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's a message in there to communicate that when we look at that event. Then, the nighttime conversation with Nicodemus, right? This high-ranking Pharisee in John chapter 3. We must understand that account Uh, We must understand that that account was included in this gospel to help us see that Jesus Christ was the son of the living God. Is this making sense? Then John chapter 4, which is what we read our text of emphasis from, uh, came from this morning. Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in Sychar. And from this account we should seek to come away with a clearer understanding of the reality that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, we might have life through his name. And so we're going to look at John chapter 4 and see what we find therein. So if you have your Bibles, that's where we'll be focused primarily this morning. John chapter 4, reading from verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea started and started back to Galilee, the north. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, 
near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired, by, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. Let me give you some context. At about noon, Jesus was traveling from Judea in the south, headed north to the cities of Israel, and passed through Samaria. Now, sometimes in our reading of scripture, we breeze over some, some key words. One of the key words in this passage, or at least in this case, is a location, Samaria. Now, it's significant to know a bit of the history of the region and the city of Samaria because the city of Samaria served as the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel during the time of the kings. Okay, so when you're going through and reading the Bible, you come to first and second kings, right? First king of Israel, or first king, yes, first king of Israel was uh, Saul, right? Give us a king. It was later that the kingdom was split in two, Israel in the, in the north, the, Israel, the kingdom of Israel in the north, and the kingdom of Judah in the south, which is where King David reigned from in the south. And during the time of king, the kings, uh, you'll get the story of Elijah and Ahab. And the kings of the north of Israel were very wicked and idolatrous. And that, as a result of that, they ended up being exiled, right? And the kingdom was no more. Anyways, there are many other infamous stories of what happened, but their problem was false worship. And false worship was set up from the beginning of Israel's existence. And so it was rent in two and eventually no longer. The sad story is that due to their severe gravitation and practice of idolatry, and they were influenced strongly by other nations. They wanted to be like them, right? They were doomed to exile, uh, uh, doomed and, and exiled from the land that God had given them. And the cities of Samaria were taken over by the king of Assyria. Okay, so, and, so it actually, the Bible is great because it actually tells you the history in the book of Kings, in 2 Kings, exactly how Samaria came to be the way that it is at this point in time. Uh, of, of Jesus's day. So I'm going to flip there. Now, yeah, let's, let, let's flip there and it'll, it'll tell you. 2 Kings chapter 17, 24. I'm going to read this to you. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sephraim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria in place of the people of Israel. They took possession of Samaria and settled in its cities. When they first settled there, they did not worship the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. They're killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. It was still the holy land. They were defiling the land. And the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there. Let him go and live there and teach them the law of the God of the land. 
So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel. He taught them how they should worship the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the people of Samaria had made, every nation in the cities which they lived. The people of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, the people of Kuth made Nergal, the people of Hamath made uh, Ashima, the Abites made Nibahaz and Tartak, the Sephirites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sephraim. They also worshiped the Lord and appointed him among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they worshiped the Lord but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they continue to practice their former customs. They do not worship the Lord and they do not follow the statutes or ordinances of, or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. But if you jump down to verse 41, so these nations worshiped the Lord, but also served their carved images to this day, their children and their children's children continued to do as their ancestors did. Now, simply just reading that to give you a little history on Samaria and how it came to be. It used to be uh, a region, the cities of the children of Israel, where they were to worship God. But they struggled with idolatry. They ended up being exiled and the king of Assyria took over. When the king of Assyria took over, he takes all of these exiles from all of these different places, from Babylon, from here, from there. And he puts them all, replaces the Israelites and puts them all in the cities of Samaria. And then they started to have problems because they continued idol worship, which is why the Israelites got removed in the first place. So others come and continue idol worship, and then lions appear in the land. And so then the king of Assyria says, okay, we'll bring back a priest, have him teach these people from all over how to worship and fear God, and then it'll settle the lions of the land. So that happens. But simultaneously, this thing called syncretism happens. Samaria was a land plagued by syncretism. What is that? It is ideologies and practices from different religious belief systems, often contrary to one another, but mixed together. And so they believed a little of this, and they believed a little of that, and they practiced a little of this, and they practiced a little of that, and they accessed whatever ideology they needed when they needed it. It was a type of amalgamation of worship, mixed. Ultimately, it was a land of confusion. So maybe you can imagine a little bit better with me now. Years and years later, as Jesus is heading north on foot from the old southern kingdom of Judah, he steps foot into the region of Samaria. And he remembers the history of the place and the tragedy that befell the people as a result of the forfeit of their covenant with God and their desire for other gods. And so Jesus, the I am, right? He begins walking through towns and cities and perhaps he passes an altar to Baal. 
and a shrine on a hilltop. And he's walking, the I am keeps walking, and he sees off in the distance between trees a forest sanctuary dedicated to Ashtoreth. And he keeps going, and he's walking, the I am, he goes further, and he sees an altar of rocks prepared for the lone traveler to stop and burn offerings to some deity. And then the I am keeps walking, he keeps walking, and finally he sees something that's familiar, he sees Jacob's well, related to the worship of the true God. And there he stops, he sits, and he waits. And at the height of noon, at the hottest time of the day, when people are scarce, no one's out because the hot sun is burning (laughs) everyone, Who is the I am going to encounter at Jacob's well? I'm sure he knew. A woman approaches. John 4, verse 7. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman. And it's not only that she's a Samaritan. It's, she's also a woman. And the Jews in this time have no dealings with Samaritans, let alone Jewish men with foreign women. So the Jews considered any non-Jew as unclean. And they distanced themselves from anyone with the title of other. So I imagine, based on the history of Samaria, the Jews didn't feel the Samaritans should be in their land at all, let alone worshiping their God. And the the oppressive belief system in regards to Samaritans and in regards to women in general, who had few rights in society, makes it all the more interesting why Jesus would stop to have a one-on-one conversation with this woman. And so we're also keeping in mind that what transpires in this conversation will reveal something about Jesus being the Christ, the son of the living God. So he says to the woman, give me a drink. You know what's interesting? God has no problem asking women to serve him. Even when it looks taboo, even when it's contrary to society's culture, God has no problem asking of anyone service. Religious folk have a problem, but not God. Why? Because a greater one than culture is here. The I am uses the entirety of his creation for that which he sees fit. So regardless of our human structures and the concepts that we use to make sense of the way that the world works, God cannot be confined to that. And in this case, the I am asked for a drink of water from a foreign woman at an unlikely time of day to quench his thirst. Serve me. 
very suspect to an onlooker, but very much a pattern of God to operate counterculturally. Jesus enlists people to serve him. He doesn't prohibit them. And the women of scripture make up some of the most devoted servants of God. Their stories, however, don't often get told. Religious folk today may like to limit service options for the other half of humanity, but Jesus goes the radical mile for this time and asks a non-Jewish woman for a drink of water. So, look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. You know, Jesus, Jesus wants us to know who he is and also what he's offering you. Everything that the creator God offers to us, okay, everything that the I am offers to you and to me revolves around the concept of life. What do I mean by that? Well, what is the main thing that differentiates the creator God from all other gods? It's the ability to give life. Because of Jesus, this is Jesus, Jesus speaking, because of who I am, he says, that is what I have to offer. Life. That means through the very words that I speak, through the very words that God speaks, the goal is to promote life, to restore life, to enhance life, to produce life, to awaken life in your physical being and within your very soul. And so he tells the woman, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for the water of life. It, is, it has occurred to me that sometimes we don't ask God for the right things. We don't ask him for things that promote life. What do I mean by that? What, in the ways that we live, in the ways that we practice, and the things that we believe that we need in life, what promotes a healthy experience? an experience of longevity, of peace, of contentment. Those are elements that promote life. Jesus said, if, if you'd have asked me, I would have put a life source in you. Hmm. 
This is the same language as Jesus saying, I will abide in you. God refers to the spirit of God abiding in the believer as a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Just as a spring flows of its own accord as a constant source of sustenance in nature, so the spirit of God operates in the same way in the heart of those who believe. He, the spirit, will always be there, the place where he was supposed to be from the beginning of time. So the woman takes him up on his offer and tells him she wants the living water. She says, I want the water that becomes an endless life, an endless life spring in my soul. What Jesus is offering is something that we don't naturally possess. I know I feel like I'm talking in circles here, but how is it that we are alive, yet Jesus is offering life? What is the difference between existence and the life Christ is talking about? What is Jesus' definition of life? There's a slang term that's come about recently. <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's giving me life. I use that. But what does that mean, this expression, right? It's a term that kind of describes the, the invigorating or the renewing element of something. It describes something that is, that's so good, you just got a surge of energy and you would gladly receive it again. It's giving me life. Perhaps, perhaps the true life, the one that God offers, the one that goes beyond mere existence, is a reality that invigorates, that renews, or that energizes every single aspect of your being. It's like a surge of energy, a renewal, a transformation to your entire self. It impacts your thoughts, your motivations, your practices, your life habits, so much so that you really are a new creation. And without God, when I think about it, and without God, I imagine the state of humanity operating at half capacity, although the charger says full. You got an iPhone, you know what happens. <laughs> if you had it long enough, the battery will say full, but the battery is not full. That's my issue right now. <laughs> I imagine humanity operating like that. That's our default. The battery says full, but we're only operating at a portion of capacity, not even half. And so when Jesus says, I want to give you life, I mean, the phone is working, but it's not in its fullness. He has something more whole, more complete, more full to offer. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband 
and then come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. You know, once you tell Jesus you want the fountain of life in your soul, once you let Jesus in, you're about to get a real honest revelation of yourself. In a message similar to this one, or what Jesus is saying, if I could translate, God tells her, I know you. I know you. God knows you. I know where you've come from. I know where you're going. I know the thing that's causing you shame. I know why you're at this well at 12 noon when the sun is hottest. I know why you've had five husbands. Because I'm well aware that to survive as a woman in an oppressive society causes you to do what you have to do to survive. I know that. I'm aware that you're probably exhausted and that the man that you currently live with isn't your husband because maybe you were tired or maybe you were actually in love with this one, unlike the other five you used to survive. Maybe you're just done with marriage. You've tried to do it the right way five times. It could be anything, but I know you. I know. I know you're confused about faith and spirituality because if you were actually acquainted with me, with me, this conversation would go a lot different. And for us, if we actually knew God, our lives would be a lot different. I know you're confused. I know you've got shame and guilt for things in your life. I know you're far from perfect. I know you. And the deepest desire of a human being is to be known truly and fully by another. The good, the great, the bad, the ugly, yet to still be fully embraced and seen and understood. So Jesus, the Bible says, tells her all the things that she's ever done. Well, all the things that were most relevant to someone knowing her. And she feels seen. Jesus Christ, the I am, is saying that a divine relationship is what is missing in the human experience. It is this relationship 
that powers the entire individual outside of the sustenance of temporal food. For example, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, uses the same, this is the same language and illustration. Humans shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Humans shall not live. Humans cannot live in the fullest sense simply by bread, simply by water. He said, you'll drink this water and be thirsty again. I want to give you living water. You'll eat this bread and be hungry again. You will not survive. I have other bread to give you. We are physical beings with spiritual needs. He created us that way. We are physical beings that are both powered by physical things, temporal food, and spiritual things because we were created in the image of God. We were created with a physical form, but with a response to a spiritual divine presence. And so Jesus comes promising life in its fullness because our lives are void of it. We've been a half-charged battery for a long time. And so Jesus is basically saying, you're living a partial existence. This is not the life I was talking about. And like the syncretism of the region of Samaria, we are syncretists in our hearts. And we seek to power ourselves with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And the I am comes and he says, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what or who you worship. There's confusion here. There's confusion in here. He's like, let me give you the true source of life. And he comes in, comes into your life, comes into your heart once you invite him. And he sees a shrine there on the throne of your heart dedicated to money. And he sees another altar erected for the obsession of sports and game. And he finds another edifice erected on the weeds of vanity and glorification. And he keeps walking around until he finds a place where he can find some rest. Some space dedicated to truth. If you want to worship God in spirit and truth, what does that mean? Worshiping God in spirit and in truth, drop the syncretism. You got to clear out some space. You got to make some room. There's too much going on in there. Let him install a living spring. Because not every source is going to give you living water. So Jesus, the I am, 
reveals this to a woman of Samaria, not a Jew, not a man, a woman. And it changed her life. If you read the rest of the account, it changed her life so much that she told the people of the town and they had to come and see for themselves and their lives were changed. Because the spring overflows. And that experience not only filled the woman, but it filled Jesus. <laughs> so much that he didn't even eat after that. He came and he was hungry. The account ends and he never eats. <laughs> and but says he was satisfied. I want to invite, I want to invite everyone now to, like the woman at the well, receive a living spring in their heart. That means that your source of true abundant life and existence will be powered by God himself. So I want you to pray this prayer with me. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know I'm not perfect. I know my life is less than light. And I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. I want to turn from leading my own life and I want to invite you to come into my heart and lead my life. I invite you to be a living spring, my source of true life, not simply of just existence, but of a change of being. I want to trust and follow you as my savior. I thank you, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.